Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Annika Christensen, and I'm a curator here, curator here at ACCA, and thank you all for joining us this evening. The Cities of Architecture lecture series happens monthly here at ACCA. Next month, we'll be travelling to Shanghai with James Brearley, who's the director of Brearley Architects and Urbanists, and details and bookings can be found in the program section of ACCA's website. To begin, I would like to sincerely acknowledge the Boon the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present, and to all First Nations people who join us here this evening. Before I welcome our guest speaker tonight, I'd firstly like to thank Starwood Whiskey for their Spanish hot chocolate, which has been inspired by light, spiced chocolate churros and to thank our presenting partner, Abercrombie & Kent, which is a luxury travel company who offer unique adventures and vacations around the world. It's a pleasure tonight to welcome and introduce our guest speaker, Chin-Yi Lim, who's the director of Sibling, an award-winning practice that is passionate about engaging society with good architecture and design through the production of new and unexpected spatial outcomes. Madrid is a very special city for Chin-Yi. In 2007, she lived and worked in Madrid for several months. And in 2016, she was the recipient of the AIA Julux Study Tour Award for Emerging Architects and returned to the Spanish city as part of the study program. Due to his historical and geographical diversity, Spain has had a long history of architectural ingenuity, with early influence from the Romans and the Moors, giving way to later experiments with Renaissance, Baroque, and neoclassical styles before the arrival, of, the arrival sorry, of modernism and the international style in the 19th century. Today, Madrid is increasingly being recognised as an important centre of international design, experimentation and excellence, with several important contemporary developments, including the, the Edificio Mirador, the Caixa Forum and the Barajas Airport, complementing a city of historically important buildings, including the, including the Plaza Mayor, the Prado Museum, Atocha Station and the Metropolis Building on Gran Via. I'll now hand over to Chin Yi, who will speak about Madrid in much more depth. And if anyone in the audience has any questions, please save them up to the end. We'll have a roving microphone at the end of the night. Thank you. All right, good evening, everyone. Um, thanks for joining me tonight as I take you on a tour through Madrid. Um, also, a big thank you to Aka for inviting me here tonight. It's been lots of fun putting together this talk on a city that I've always been a keen enthusiast on. So, my first visit to Madrid actually begins in the Netherlands. As part of my architectural exchange at the Technical University of Delft, I enrolled in a course with a two-week study trip to Madrid. Of course, it was a no-brainer to leave the rainy and depressing Holland for a sunny and bright Spain. Naturally, being an exchange student for Australia, from Australia, I took the opportunity to add on a Contiki tour of tapas and cañas, and Gaudi to Barcelona. Following our obligatory study time in the capital, however, after two weeks in Madrid, my classmates and I became so enamoured with the city, we decided to cancel our trip to Barcelona and stay on. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. <laughs> um, so after completing my exchange at Delft, I couldn't wait to get back to Spain. I deferred the final year of my degree here in Melbourne and managed to land my managed to land myself an internship with a small and emerging architectural practice, Dos Masuno Arquitectos. Things were looking very promising for them as they had just won some competitions and had just completed a large-scale multi-residential project. 
if I think about it now, at the time that I was working for them, I am now the same age as them. <laughs> um, in this year, I explored the city extensively. Um, I managed to pick up enough Spanish to impress family and friends that were visiting. After a year, my time was up and I returned to Melbourne to finish off my masters with the plan to come straight back to continue living La Vida Loca. However, the year was 2007, and as I completed my degree, I found all my European friends asking for advice on immigrating to Australia for work. Needless to say, my plans to return to Spain didn't eventuate. Unlike nearly all of my Spanish architect friends who had to leave their country in order to pursue their careers or leave the profession completely, I was fortunate to be able to find fulfilling work and establish a successful practice here in Melbourne with colleagues that I love. Last year, though, I had the great opportunity to return to Madrid as part of the AIA Dulux study tour. We had the opportunity to visit many practices and contemporary pieces of architecture. Having not been back in almost eight years, I was super curious to see how the city had been faring since I was last there. How visible would the signs of a depressed economy be on the face of the city? And what would the fate of architectural practice in Madrid be? So Madrid has always been a city that has flourished creatively in the face of adversity. During the Franco dictatorship, amongst the monumental and heroic, we saw the production of progressive and utopian projects, such as Francisco Javier Ruiz's Torres Blancas. Post-Franco, while Spain transitioned into a socialist-led nation, Madrid became the center of La Movida. This was in the 80s. La Movida was a countercultural movement a reflex from the cultural repression and censorship the country had experienced in the Franco era. You may be familiar with this film director, Pedro Almodovar. He's probably Spain's biggest export in culture. His earliest works evolved from this period of La Movida, and they're almost a documentation of the alternative wild and colorful scene. During Madrid's economic boom of the 90s and noughties, the city looked abroad and beyond, bringing world-class architects such as Philip Johnson, MVRDV, and Richard Rogers to mark the city as a global capital. Finally now, the city and nation is recovering from its most unbelievable crisis. While 70% of architectural practices operating in Spain have closed, there has also been an emergence of new forms of architecture. Architects in Madrid have had to reconfigure the way they practice looking abroad for project opportunities and taking up research and academic positions locally as well as overseas. Over the last decade, we've seen a new Spanish architectural diaspora as a consequence of this situation. So as I mentioned, my first visit to Madrid was in 2006. It was part of a two-week study trip during university. The studio had us investigate the city through a Debordian derive, that is, an unplanned journey guided not by maps, but rather by our intuition and shaped by the physical and sensorial experiences of the urban environment. Our derive commenced at the symbolic centre of Madrid, Puerta del Sol. This is the site of the original gate to the old walled city. It's also the site today for political protest and city celebration. This plaque, Kilometro Cero, marks the point where all distances between Madrid and other cities are measured. 
We moved past the historic centre and past monumental places such as the Palacio Real, the largest royal palace in Europe. This was built on the ruins of a former Moorish Alcazar. The Alcazar was built to protect the old capital, Toledo, from Christian invasion in the ninth century. Little physical remains other than a part of the old fortress walls on which the palace sits on, telling the story of Madrid's Moorish beginnings. Moving through the rabbit warren of streets and network of intimate plazas, we can't help but feel energised from the activity in these spaces. This is a lifeblood of Madrid city, and perhaps more telling of how the Moorish might have influenced the way of life, occupying the outdoor spaces as places for living in. So this is Plaza Mayor, another landmark tourist destination. It's the main square of Madrid, built in the 15th century. It was a site for public punishment and penance of sins to the church during the Spanish Inquisition. Today it contains a mix of residential, public and commercial program. Francisco Rizzi's painting, Alto de Fe, depicts in intricate detail a scene from one of these public hearings at the Plaza Mayor. You can see the scale of the public gathering in this work. You can see this work at the Museo del Prado, um, which contains Spanish national art, including Velazquez and Goyas. A bird's eye view shows Plaza Mayor inserted incongruously into the city center. <clears throat> it's out of scale to its context. Interestingly, if you look at the perimeter of the plaza, you see how this square is not so much made up by buildings, but by a series of extruded facades. We work our ways through inner city neighborhood Malasaña, passing, passing the Plaza Dos de Mayo. This is a birthplace of La Movida. The sudden freedom of expression brought out sometimes a hedonistic culture. People also began to think about new ways of occupying public space. You see here in this photo from the 80s, the reappropriation of monuments that took place here in the Plaza Dos de Mayo. Note the fence that is now installed around the monument. Although its recent heyday in the 80s has passed, Malasaña still maintains itself as a center for alternative culture in Madrid and is somewhat of a neighborhood incubator for culture and the arts. So moving further north, we started here we started here in Puerto del Sol and moved up through Malasaña. But moving further north, this is in Sanche, 19th century ex, um, expansion of the city. It is characterized by wider, gridded residential streets of seven or eight story buildings. However, many of the buildings here were actually built later in the 20th century. And as we move further away from the center of Madrid, we finally come to the Puerta de Europa. This is the gate of Europe. The iconic twin towers by Philip Johnson built in the 90s, these mark the entry to modern Madrid of the 20th century. From this point on, we're faced with ring roads circulating around the city. The intimacy that we felt as we moved through the historic center is swiftly replaced by a feeling of displacement, much like that felt by the protagonist of Fernando Aranoa's 1990s film, Barrio. Set in the outskirts of suburban Madrid, the film is a depiction of life in the suburban ho housing projects. And finally, we come to the city's limits. We know this as we're confronted by large-scale housing development blocks under construction. 
The year is 2006, and there seems to be a sense of opportunity and development in these outlying areas in the capital city. The end of our derivative has brought us to San Gennaro. San Gennaro is a relatively new neighbourhood developed in the 90s that sits on the northeastern edge of Madrid. It's a result of the real estate boom in Spain, which led to production of housing in new neighbourhoods on the outer ring of the city, a phenomenon felt in many global centres. Typically, the architectural typology within these neighbourhoods are compact, repetitive and economically efficient. Mirador by Dutch firm MVRDV was built in 2005. It challenges the conventional typology of developer-efficient housing. The tower preserves open space by lifting the required number of apartments off the ground plane and into the sky. A large communal space is created with a view of the city and the mountains beyond. I believe there were plans for the large open space to become a community garden for the occupants of the building. There was also plans for a large escalator to connect the ground plane up to the patio. Uh, I imagine this was scrapped by their developers and Valley managed down to this. The building block is made up of a variety of um, housing compact types, in integrating different social groups and lifestyles, a contrast to the mass-produced repetition of the standard family house. These are organised around a network of streets, walls and corridors, highlighted here in red, which all meet at the central sky patio. I only visited the project when it was newly completed and haven't been back since. I can't say how successful this space is. This photo is obviously from the architect's photographic shoot. Um, however, the visionary ideas proposed by the architects demonstrate the willingness for Madrid to be a city of experimentation. Another multi-residential project of interest is this one by Dos Masuno Arquitectos, who I worked for. The Young Practice of Five won the project through competition and had just completed its construction, their most significant to date when I joined them. Ignacio Borrego, one of the directors, had been one of the key architects on the Mirador project when he worked for MVRDV. It's interesting to see how the influence of the Super Dutch has translated into a Spanish context. If you're familiar with the work of MVRDV, this project may bring to mind one of the firm's earliest housing projects, Wazoko. Wazoko is an elderly housing project in, just in the outskirts of Amsterdam, where the challenge of fitting the building program onto a small site was solved through cantilevering apartments suspended over open space area. Whilst this project by Dos Masuno has a similar concept, its rationale is based on construction efficiency. The architects developed a process that minimised the on-site time required for construction. Each of the boxed units was fabricated off-site in a factory and craned into place on-site. This is a back facade. It's um, clad, in a, clad in a steel mesh that controls the light. And the car park is punctuated by voids to the sky. <clears throat> Last year, I got to catch up with one of my old colleagues who I'd worked with at Dos Masuno, and she informed me of how the practice had suffered under the recent crises and had subsequently disbanded, all taking up full-time academic positions in Madrid or in the States. 
This was quite sad for me, because at the time of working there, it felt like the practice had a very promising future, having won several competitions that were already underway. Anyway, so we're spending a bit of time here in the burbs, and while the ideas and concepts behind these buildings are clever and push the conventions of multi-residential architecture, there's obviously some problems with the master planning of these areas, with little consideration to the spaces between these large development blocks. These aren't issues faced only by Madrid, but by most global cities that have expanded over the last 20 or so years. There is one project, though, that I want to show you that does try to address these master planning issues. This is Air Trees, and it was the winning competition entry by architectural studio Ecosistema Urbano. Funded by the Madrid City Council, the competition brief was for a public urban artwork in a newly developed neighbourhood called Vallecas. Ecosistema Urbano had proposed an urban intervention that addressed the ecological, social and community issues of this area. The architects created like a linear urban forest down the centre of the new neighbourhood's main boulevard with three large structures that they've called air trees. These act as a focal point for the social life of the community, but also as a large-scale sustainable temperature cooling device. Being landlocked, Madrid suffers from unbearably hot summers, and in an area like this with little green space, it would be more so. At the base of each of these trees, there's a slight hollow that provides protected space for gathering and community activities. One of the structures is filled with natural planting, and the other contains a water evaporation cooling system. The structures are topped with PV cells that power the infrastructures. In the evening, they light up to provide surveillance to the area. Commissioned by the municipality, this project demonstrates the progressive nature of the city. And at the 2010 World Expo in Shanghai, a full-scale air, air tree was reconstructed as a prototype for contemporary urban intervention. Okay, so back to residential architecture, and here we are in the 19th century expansion of the city, a little bit closer to the centre. <clears throat> this project is called Girasol, and it's by Catalan architect Jose Luis Codoc. I was lucky to discover this project last year on the study tour. The name Girasol means sunflower, aptly named. As you can see, the apartment plan sits diagonal to the street for south orientation, allowing deep solar access into the apartments. The building sits comfortably in its context. It's clean, undulating brick walls, a contrast to the ornamental facades around it. You can see how the apartments are set back from the street, creating a pattern of, for the terraces, creating a pattern of solids and voids. Kadirk's work which you can see much more of in Barcelona, was always a fastidious study of the sun. He developed new types of apertures and fenestration systems, such as these sliding timber louvers, for the occupants within to control their solar access. It's interesting to note also that Kadirk spent some time studying under the Finnish architect Alva Aalto, and you can see the influence in materiality and detailing here. Housing in Spain seems to have a history of innovation. And should you visit Madrid, your journey on the motorway from the airport into the centre of town will take you past some interesting housing projects. Probably the most eye-catching of these is the Torres Blancas by Francisco Javier Oiza. 
Conceived and built during the Franco era, architects were far freer to express new ideas under the dictatorship than, say, writers or filmmakers. Because architecture wasn't considered a literal art, architects were often able to experiment under the nose of these dictators who wanted to communicate a level of progression and forward thinking to the rest of the world. The Torres Blancas, meaning white towers, is a great example of organic brutalism through its exploration of natural and organic forms with the use of concrete. The tower is designed as a tall cylindrical trunk made up of unevenly stacked discs. The rotating curves become balconies for the luxury apartments within. At the top, the circular forms fan out like foliage, providing a platform for a rooftop terrace and pool, which doesn't look like it's been used in a while. <laughs> the apartments were built for the wealthy and offered generous floor plans in the sky. Looking at the intersecting curves of the floor plan, I imagine that all your furniture would have to be custom designed. The intrinsic organic nature of the structure of the organic structure is carried throughout all aspects of the tower and the landscaping and the foyers and communal spaces. <clears throat> In the interior, even the walls seem to flow seamlessly from floor to ceiling, creating a playground for domesticity. You can see the undulating ceiling there. This playfulness has often recurred in the architecture of Madrid, which we will see more of in other projects. People still live in these apartments, including the children of the architect. If you ever want to visit, this is the address. However, <laughs> however it's extremely difficult to get into the building, being very well guarded. So while this project demonstrates innovation in the use of concrete, another architect who was much more prolific in his work with concrete structures is Miguel Fisac. Fisac like Oiza, had the opportunity to experiment creatively through architectural practice during the Franco era. An architect and self-taught builder, he's known for his innovation in concrete structures, being one of the first to implement hollow post-tensioned beams such as these. Don't they look like they've been inspired by natural bones? The Hydrographico, a facility for the Spanish Ministry of the Environment, is a large hall utilising these post-tension beams. It spans 22 metres. You can see the spaces in between these beams are glazed, bringing in light into the large hall. Fisac also experimented with concrete's formal qualities. He used a system of ropes and fabrics to create these fabric formworks. To me, these look like they've been 3D printed and created on a software program. If you want to visit Fisac's work, the most accessible is possibly the Church of Santa Ana. The Church of Santa Ana utilises also the hollow post-tension beams. But the interior, you see how the light play washes in his subtle, curved concrete forms. <coughs> But the project I wanted to spend a little more time on is Fisak's Pagoda. This project was a private commission for the Horbar Laboratories. It consisted of a large hall where he utilised his concrete beam system and also an office tower. 
Now the office tower was made up of, of a pattern of rotating floor plates with the concrete facade smoothly lofted in between. Visak developed a special firmware to create these perfectly parabolic surfaces. The building facade was poured in situ from the top levels so as to ensure concrete wouldn't drip on the levels below. In the plan, you can see how the, plate, the floor plates rotate 45 degrees. And in section, you see how the facade starts to curve up and touch the window sills. The tower sat adjacent an expressway and was fondly nicknamed the Pagoda by the public due to its recognizable form. In the 90s, however, the future of the pagoda was uncertain. Despite wide campaigning by the public and of course the architectural community, it was unsuccessful in making it onto the register of protected buildings. To the delight of the owners of the building, they were granted permission to demolish it. And it, I know it's depressing. <laughs> and in its place, developed this new commercially efficient structure, the Pax Corp headquarters. Who designed that, eh? <laughs> Sadly, Miguel Fasak was still alive when the project was demolished, and apparently he claimed that de the demolition was a revenge from the Opus Dei, of whom he was once a member, trying to destroy his image as an architect. Although it no longer exists, the pagoda has a strong presence in the memory of Madrid, even today, 17 years after its demolition. So, we're back in the 21st century in the early noughties. The Spanish economy is ripe and development is at a high. The Basque government has just commissioned Frank Gehry to design the Bilbao Guggenheim, and Barcelona has just debuted on the world stage with a successful Olympics. It seems Madrid is keen to also jump out of the shadows of Barcelona and has commissioned some landmark projects to be designed by famed foreign architects. I'm sure that if you visited Madrid, you would have visited the Paseo del Prado, Madrid's grand tree-lined boulevard just adjacent to the Retiro Park. Um, the Paseo del Prado, it's a bit of an architectural catwalk. It's got the Museo del Prado, the Caixa Forum, and the Reina Sofia Museum of Contemporary Art. Starting with the Reina Sofia, this museum extension was designed by French architect Jean Nouvel and houses modern art mainly from Spain. Its most famed piece, though, is Picasso's Guernica. This is a depiction of the bombing of the town of Guernica in the Basque country of Spain. This large mural work was commissioned by the Spanish government uh, for the 1937 World's Fair in Paris. It drew worldwide attention to the Spanish Civil War. Picasso by this time had emigrated to France, never to return to Spain. It's a really stunning piece. So you can see here, this is the original 18th century building. And the Jean Nouvel extension of 8,000 square meters is this triangular space here. The original building was, um, was originally a hospital. Um, it continued operating as a hospital until the 1960s when it was shut down. 
In the late 80s, it became the Art Museum and in 2005 had the extension. It's hard to ignore the deep red form of the extension, its glossy red panel sitting raised on a concrete plinth above the street. I'm not sure how I feel about it. This form contains the new auditorium and administrative spaces to the gallery. Beneath this voluptuous red form is the cafe spaces. However, what I think is most successful about this building is a large-scale canopy over the entrance to the gallery. It almost touches the existing 18th century building, with the aluminium surface reflecting the old in the new. The site is quite challenging as it's adjacent to the busy intersection facing a Tocha station. But this entry canopy, with its large cutouts framing the sky, provides some calm from the hectic, busy street. <clears throat> Further along, we have Herzog and de Muron's Kaisha Forum. This contemporary art gallery is really wonderful and, at, and at, at a scale that's much more digestible than the Reina Sofia. It's called the Caixa Forum because it's sponsored by one of Spain's major banks, Caixa. Banking institutions in Spain are required to put a percentage of their profits into social and cultural ventures that benefit the community. Set back from the main street, the building is an adaptive reuse of a former electrical substation. The architects retain the brick shell of the building and remove the base, which frees up access and addresses urban connections through the site. You can see here also the landscaped wall by French landscape architect Patrick Leblanc, which reflects the greenery of the Retiro Park nearby. You enter the building from beneath. As a tessellated underside of the building hovers above, you feel like you're being sucked into the belly of the building. Once you enter, the tessellated steel panels continue on the ground plane. Circulation is via two staircases, one that is a curvaceous and clean white whalebone volume, and the other a reflective and fractured aluminium staircase that takes you into the basement lecture theatre of the building. Whilst the building is located adjacent to the Grand Boulevard of Paseo del Prado, It is also bordering the winding small streets of the historic centre. The crown of the building is finished with a perforated sculptural corten screen in a form that references the roofscape of the surrounding neighbourhood behind. Now, one last international airport that I have to mention, which you're surely going to visit if you go to Madrid, is the Terminal 4 of Barajas Airport by British architect Rogers Sturken Harbour. This has to be one of the most humanizing and pleasant experiences I've had in an airport. The dramatic wave roof form is internally clad in bamboo. It's raised high above all function of, of the airport on these tree-like concrete and steel structures. As you're always able to see clearly ahead of where you're, you are within the large complex, um, this is comforting in a stressful environment like an airport. The rainbow gradient to the columns also act as a subtle wayfinding treatment. The roof is punctuated by a series of skylights bringing in tons of natural light with these large eaves to shade the facades. The project was completed in 2005 and is the largest terminal in Spain. It was commissioned to compete with major hub airports in Europe. 
So we've just had a 20-year fiesta of economic development. We've seen large-scale multi-res projects in the burbs and also the collection of Starkitect buildings in the centre. But what's been happening now, after the party? <laughs> well, as we're aware, for most of the last decade, Spain has faced its most unbelievable financial crisis. More than 70% of architectural offices had closed in this time, with many architects moving overseas into academia or finding other careers. Interestingly though, in this period, things didn't stop, and there are a handful of prominent projects underway, though each not without their own set of struggles. The first one I want to talk about is the Madrid-Rio project. It's possibly the most important public work and most ambitious project ever undertaken by the city. So I'll just reorientate ourselves here. Oh, we started here. We started here at Puerto del Sol, went to Plaza Mayor, through the palace, up through Malasaña and the Ensanche, and all the way out here to the suburbs. Then we came back and down the Paseo del Prado. The Madrid, Madrid Rio lies along this length of river. It hugs around the cent it's like hugging the center of um, Madrid. In 2000C, the Madrid City Council decided to bury a part of the ring road, which ran along six kilometers of the river, connecting this isolated piece of land back to the city. This made way for 150 hectares of green space and public facilities such as sports areas, art centres, playgrounds and other, rec other recreational space. Costing more than 4 billion euros, the project was 80% funded by public money and was the ambitious plan launched by the city mayor of the time. No wonder they're in so much debt. The project was an international competition launched in 2005 and was won by Dutch landscape office West 8 and a conglomeration of three Spanish practices led by Burgos Garrido Arquitectos. It took almost eight years to complete, officially opening in 2015. The investment of such a large sum of public funds into the project at a time when the country was facing its largest economic hardship was faced with much public scrutiny. However, the long-term benefits of its return to the city is invaluable, renewing its relationship to the river. Since the completion of Rio Madrid, other cities across Europe have looked towards it as leading examples for urban renewal, and Burgos Garrido architects have since been consulting on these projects. So, jumping down another scale, is this project, a private education institute, the Gine de los Rios Foundation. This was designed by Amid Cerro Nuevo, um, an emerging architectural office. They won the project in competition. The challenging and bold design was much anticipated. However, marred by the crises, the project took 10 years from competition stage to completion last year. Located within the Ensanche, the infill project presents a bold front amongst its neighbouring 19th century neighbours. The building's intricate external facade is made up of an infinite number of galvanised steel rods welded together to form a veil over the glazed facade. It also acts as a trellis for plants to grow. 
As you enter off the street, you realise that this building isn't so much about the interior programming, but rather the garden oasis in which it surrounds. And you can see in the plan how the buildings are like a series of interconnected pavilions encircling the landscape's courtyard. My mind boggles at how the architects documented the millions of steel rods and worked with the builder to achieve this outcome. Within the building, we're shown an equally exquisite, detailed auditorium. Its warm-toned timber lining and use of off-form concrete is stunning. The rest of the interiors, the circulation spaces and classrooms were in contrast to the rest of the project, poorly finished, blank and forgotten, which was disappointing. We could only speculate that funds to complete this building to its original design intentions had run out. So the Prado Media Lab is also designed by an emerging architectural practice, Langarita Navarro. Like Herzog and de Miron's Kaisha Forum, in which it's right next door to, it's an adaptive reuse of an older industrial building. Langarita Navarro were awarded the project in 2007. They worked closely with the Media Lab to develop the spaces specific to its needs. The Media Lab is a government-run and funded organisation that defines itself as a space for production, research and dissemination of digital culture. It's a new type of cultural institution that has emerged over the last decade or so. Here we'd probably call it a maker lab or a hacker lab, with facilities including workshops, laboratories, exhibition and presentation spaces. The architects retained most of the internal structure. However, they inserted a series of volumes that are hung from the original building structure as circulation and exhibition spaces. The skin of these volumes is made out of a recyclable polymer fabric with embedded illumination that changes through a spectrum of colours. The rest of the spaces are left relatively untouched, awaiting the occupation of artists and visitors. They are designed to be reprogrammable and flexible spaces. On one of the main facades is also this programmable digital facade, which projects the workings within to the community. When we visited the Langarita Navarro studio, we got to see a prototype of this facade, which was developed with the Media Lab specifically for the project and cost one million euro. Work on this project began in 2007. However, it wasn't until seven years later it was financed by cultural government funds. One year after it opened, the Media Lab came under threat of eviction with the Madrid City Council considering a private corporate tenancy. Not surprisingly, this was met with wide, up wide uproar. When we visited the building last year, it was a hive of activity and fully functioning as the Media Lab. As I mentioned, this building sits right next door to the Kaisha Forum. You can draw a comparison of how these two pieces of architecture reflect the changing experience in culture. The sculptural crown and cantilevering form of the Kaisha Forum creates a sense of contemplation and awe much like the experience within. Whilst the user of the responsive facade and reconfigurable spaces of the Media Lab is representative of the participatory experience of culture within. 
Another practice that has a playful and experimental approach to materiality is Celgus Kano. Their studio in the woods and Silicon House has been their own opportunity for experimentation. Located on a residential leafy block in suburban Madrid, the studio is actually located within what was meant to be a swimming pool for the house. The architects wanted their workspace to be in the calm beneath the trees. A curved acrylic and polycarbonate facade roof creates a transparent shelter within the linear space. Imagine coming to work here every day and imagine the kind of buildings you would produce. Here you can see it sunken, nondescript and hidden from the street. These are some material samples and prototypes lying around in the studio. Colourful acrylic tubes, nets, inflatable cushions, not your typical material library. Connecting the studio to the house is a pathway, meandering underneath the trees. We start to see the sunken form, sunken orange form of the house. We enter the house through a glazed entry which is the meeting point between the public spaces and the private spaces of the home. At ground level, there's this glazed perimeter that wraps around, drawing your eye to the forest floor. The roof structure is painted in a bright orange, matching the slender steel bookcases. I love the bubble dome skylights and how cool is the fireplace. We've already put some of the bubble dome skylights in our own projects here at Sibling. We met one of the architects, Jose Selgas. He was super charming in his linen shirt and espadrilles. He explained how the organic form of the plan came from wanting to preserve all the trees to the site. It felt like this house was all about the outside with its colorful platforms connecting the ground to the roof like it was part of the landscape. There were so many quirky details to the house, the triangular day bed, the sliding door on wheels, and my favourite was the acrylic downpipe. <laughs> this playful approach to colour and experimentation with materials has started to define a contemporary Madrid style of architecture, one that doesn't take itself too seriously. In 2015, Selgas Cano was awarded the Serpentine Pavilion Commission in London, a highly regarded international platform for architecture. Their pavilion continued their experimentation with new plastic materials and their play on light and colour. After having so many global star architects built in Madrid, it's refreshing to see that this new contemporary energy of Madrid architecture is being recognised on this platform. The practice, even though based in Madrid, is now working on projects across Europe and the US. The two directors, Jose and Lucia, also hold academic positions. It seems like all the practices that we visited, Mangarita Navarro, Amid Serra Nuevo, and others maintained academic positions as a sustainable means to their practice. So the last project I wanted to discuss is possibly the smallest in scale, but speaks mountains. It's called the Escaravo by Andres Hake and his Office for Political Innovation. The project is located within the Matadero Art Precinct, which was part of that 4.4 billion Rio Madrid development. It sits incongruous amongst the large cultural buildings surrounding it. <coughs> Escaravo's low-cost structure is made out of, a, of an assemblage of materials, with its main structure being a pair of agricultural irrigation wings and greenhouse fabrics. 
It's located within one of the vast open squares of the complex, acting as a multi-purpose and mobile apparatus for a range of activities. Kitted out with amplifying systems, stage lighting, audiovisual projections and sliding stands, it can be used for public performances, market stalls, cinema nights and exhibitions. It operates on a booking system. The infrastructure is available for anybody to use as a public forum free of charge, democratising the public space. This free public amenity seems to be a reflex to the economic downturn of recent years. Its informality and tactical nature is perhaps a comment on the multi-billion euro Rio Madrid complex it is situated within. In recent years since the crises, new types of architectural projects such as these have emerged, exploring new ways of occupying, occupying space. At last year's Venice Biennale, I visited the Spanish Pavilion, which was awarded the coveted Golden Lion. It presented a series of Spanish projects that had been stalled midway through construction over the last economic crises. The exhibition also presented an optimistic future of how Spanish architects have responded in different ways under these conditions. Radical, creative and experimental spaces have been an outcome of these tough times, which isn't only relevant to Spain, but relevant across the globe. And for me as an emerging architect, it was inspiring to see this and consider how to take it on into my own practice. I went to see Francisco Mangado, the curator for the Spanish Pavilion, speak at the NGV last week. He summarised this situation well. The crisis has been an opportunity to reconfigure the role of the architect in society. Radical architecture comes out of the most extreme circumstances, and as such, Spanish architecture has undergone an architectural renaissance. Gracias. Thank you very much, uh, Chini, for your um, very intelligent, insightful and emotional um, presentation, that collective gasp that we all had at that beautiful pagoda being demolished. Um, uh, I just wanted to open up to the floor if anyone had any questions or comments that they wanted to add. 